Hello, and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, a podcast from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. Today, we speak to Dr. Roger Kornberg, editor of the Annual Review of Biochemistry. He's a professor of structural biology at Stanford University, where his goal is to elucidate the fundamental basis of gene regulation. For his studies of the molecular basis of eukaryotic transcription, Dr. Kornberg was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2006. I'd like to start with the big picture and then drill down into the specifics. And it, your, your work explores how DNA packs itself into the nucleus and then unpacks itself to move from genetic code toward a product like a protein. And I'm curious how you describe your work to someone who isn't familiar with the intricacies of molecular biology. Well, to uh, a layperson, I would begin by saying uh, what concerns us is uh, not the role of genetic information in inheritance, so in uh, passing instructions from one generation to the next, but rather the role of genetic information in the individual, uh, so in guiding both the uh, morphogenesis, the creation of the body form, and then the uh, actual function uh, throughout the life of the individual. And uh, that uh, process of the expression of genetic information uh, is complicated at two levels. First, uh, the sheer magnitude uh, necessitates packaging uh, the, as uh, you will have often heard, uh, a meter length of DNA needs to be compressed to a micrometer scale. Um, At the same time, every bit of information needs to be available. Uh, So if you think of the simple means of spooling thread, for example, then uh, much of it will be inaccessible, so there needs to be an alternative. In regard to the expression of the information once it is somehow made available, then there is a second issue. Uh, Most of the information is not expressed most of the time, which is to say uh, all of the information is available in every cell of the body, but only that portion which is required for a specific cell type is actually used in that cell. Uh, so we study uh, the entire process, and we particularly address uh, these mysterious aspects, uh, how you fold the DNA, yet make the important bits uh, available when needed, and secondly, uh, how you uh, turn on the genes you require and turn off all the others most of the time in most of the body. If, if it wasn't organized this way, how big of a mess would it be? I mean, what would it look like? So if there were no means of compaction, then the DNA would not only fill the nucleus of the cell, it would fill the entire cell, and then it would spill out of the cell. It would actually burst the cell. So packaging is is a necessity, not only from an organizational standpoint, but as a mere practical matter. So your your lab helped discover that DNA packages itself by coiling around eight histones to form what's called the nucleosome. Why does it choose that specific? Why did it evolve to have that specific form of a nucleosome? Why eight histones? Why not 12? Is there any logic or rhyme or reason to that? The... Uh, the first uh, important point to consider, uh, if you think in terms of spooling the way I mentioned, uh, then as I say, the easiest solution of the packing problem would be just to wrap all the DNA around one central core. 
Uh, what nature has done is to employ a similar mechanism only with the use of millions of mini spools, and these are the nucleosomes. So it uh, solves the packing problem by spooling, but at the same time, it makes individual bits uh, independently accessible by coiling on mini spools, many mini spools, so only a small number of those may need to be unwound for the purpose of expressing a particular bit of genetic information. Now, in regard to the histone proteins themselves, uh, what has mostly impressed people is not the fact that there are eight, or in fact, two copies each of four different types, uh, but rather that there are so few, uh, since uh, most of uh, biology and of our constitution as living things is remarkable for the complexity. And here, only four distinct types of molecule suffice throughout nature uh, to solve this problem in every organism uh, where it arises. Now, you can still ask, what are the roles of the four? And the answer is that the four come in pairs. So it's actually only two pairs of two. Uh, and those uh, two pairs of two can each be thought of as, in, in essence, a single molecule. Uh, they interact so closely. So if you like, one protein happened to get split into. And so finally, you're left with a two-body problem. Um, and those two pairs, one of which is called uh, 2A and 2B, and the other is named 3 and 4, uh, perform distinct roles. Uh, the three and four form the core, the central part of the structure about which, or of the spool about which the DNA is wrapped. And then the 2A and 2B uh, are an accessory. They're on the outside and they complete the wrapping. So it's a very elegant system. It's uh, as in all of nature when one finally perceives the details uh, more elegant than anything we might have devised. <laughs> now, you found that the nucleosomes also repress genes, essentially putting the brakes on the process that transcribes their DNA into messenger RNA. Uh, did, did the idea meet a lot of resistance when you first published it or reported it, es especially since you were, you were if, I, if I'm correct, you were working in test tubes with yeast, not, not with living mammals? That's right. The idea of the nucleosome itself met resistance <coughs> for various reasons. Uh, for one thing, uh, this was a problem of very great interest that had been studied for 75 years, and there was uh, something uh, unappealing to those who had studied it for so long about uh, the idea of a comparative youngster coming along and proposing what was indeed the solution of the problem. Uh, on the other hand, the idea about the regulatory role of the nucleosome serving as a general gene repressor uh, was really not much noticed at the time. In fact, uh, attention was focused in an entirely different, on an entirely different aspect of gene regulation for many years, and people largely ignored the functional role of nucleosomes uh, for a couple of decades. And it was only relatively recently that it came to the fore, and today it is the hottest topic in biology. Well, since the time you were a postdoc, you studied uh, an enzyme RNA polymerase II, or PAL2, that synthesizes messenger RNA and kickstarts a gene expression, and and you've written that structure, and fu that structure reveals function. What what does its structure reveal about its function, and how does that tie into the nucleosome? 
So these are, if you like, uh, still two separate aspects. So um, in regard to uh, the nucleosome, we still don't really understand how structure reveals function. And that is at the, the center of this burning issue, which, as I say, is the thing that so many people are focused upon today. In regard to the RNA polymerase, on the other hand, there we know a great deal about how structure leads to function. And that was the main subject of my work uh, for uh, somewhere between two and three decades uh, here at Stanford with uh, many collaborators. <clears throat> and so what we have been able to see in that respect at the level of structure is uh, an actual picture of the readout of genetic information. Now, seeing uh, the process of the readout of genetic information uh, then enables us both to understand and then to further analyze every detail from uh, the key aspect of the fidelity of the process, how very few mistakes are made, um, how the genetic code is read uh, accurately, uh, which is obviously the most important thing. So the structure of RNA polymerase tells us a great deal about its function. Uh, the structure, seeing the actual process of the readout of genetic information by RNA polymerase has answered central questions that we have long had about its function. The first and most important, the accurate readout of genetic information, uh, the fidelity of the process. Clearly, uh, reading the genetic code with few of any mistakes is the most important aspect. Uh, then the second thing we've learned is how when on rare occasion mistakes are made, they can be corrected. Uh, then beyond that, uh, we have begun to perceive uh, the way in which regulation of RNA polymerase function takes place. So building upon the structure of the RNA polymerase with the many additional interacting molecules that are important for regulation of the process, uh, we can begin to perceive uh, how turning on or off of genes takes place at this level. How does it relate to the nucleosome? So, uh, the, I mentioned before, uh, the nucleosome serves as a general gene repressor. Uh, in fact, uh, what we and others uh, believe is that regulation indeed happens at two distinct levels. Uh, it, turning on a gene requires, first of all, relieving repression by the nucleosome, and then secondly and separately, activating the process of RNA polymerase transcription. So once a gene is made available by unfolding a nucleosome, then uh, the appropriate action is taken and uh, the genetic information is actually read out into a, a message uh, that we refer to as messenger RNA. So you, you've investigated the regulation of transcription via Paul 2 and five transcription factors, but there's another transcription factor which you call mediator that plays an important role. What does it do? Mediator is the CPU. It is the, the computer. It is the central processing unit of regulation at the level of transcription. 
uh, every gene has associated multiple signals in the DNA, uh, multiple uh, bits of additional DNA sequence, which enable um, or control the response, so determine when and where and to what extent is a gene uh, active, uh, is it transcribed, uh, w in which cell, in which part of the body, at what time and at what level. That's incredibly important. Incredibly important, and Mediator is the device for receiving and integrating all of that regulatory information. So there are inputs uh, to the transcription machinery that inform about all of these uh, key features, but then there needs to be a receptor uh, to receive those inputs, to integrate the information, and to deliver the appropriate instruction to the RNA polymerase molecule reading the gene. That is the role of mediator. How many steps do you estimate there are in this transcription process, and how many have you clarified, and how many more do you think exist? Uh, so almost every step can be broken down into detail into more steps. Uh, and at a gross level, uh, we have, as I have mentioned, uh, two broad categories, uh, the unfolding of the DNA packaged in the nucleosome, and then it's readout by the transcription machinery. However, each of those processes can indeed be broken down into multiple steps, and if we concentrate just on the RNA polymerase for a moment, uh, the first step is recognizing the start site of the gene, finding where to begin the process of readout. That step itself involves, we think, multiple events. Uh, we don't know how many, but at a minimum three or four uh, distinct events, uh, doubtless more. Um, we have uh, only got indications of uh, that degree of uh, detail of the process at the moment. But then after the initiation of the process, there are multiple additional steps which take place, and at every point along this pathway, uh, there is regulation for all of the purposes to which I alluded. So do you still, do you think that the field is still young? I mean, are you scratching the surface? or We've, We are only at the very beginning. It's interesting that, uh, that attention uh, shifts uh, within the community of researchers, and it was once focused on the RNA polymerase aspect. It's turned now back to the nucleosome, uh, but uh, that isn't really uh, due to the challenges having been met or all of the interesting lines of investigation having been exhausted. Um, it's really more of a social phenomenon. Uh, still, the main challenges uh, for understanding transcription in the way I have just described uh, remain before us. We haven't the vaguest idea how a uh, mediator computes uh, for the purpose of regulation. And I mean, we have no idea whatsoever how it performs that computation. We have no idea what signal it delivers to the transcription machinery. And we really don't understand the process of transcription beyond those broad outlines to which I just alluded. When did you discover mediator? We discovered mediator, uh, we first published on mediator in 1990. It wasn't until the year nearly the year 2000 that that discovery was accepted 
as an important and uh, general fact about transcription. And uh, then progress along the lines of mediator research has been very, very slow in the succeeding decade up until now because of its great size and complexity, as well as even the difficulty of revealing its function in the test tube. Mediator is made of anywhere from 20 to 35 individual protein molecules. It has a mass measured in the millions, which is a very large size. I'm curious how your findings might be applied. Um, one of the obstacles to curing HIV infection is that there are latently infected cells and they create this stubborn reservoir of virus that persists even in people who are receiving anti-HIV drugs and they have no measurable, detectable virus in their blood. If they could be selectively forced to express their HIV, these latently infected cells, the cells theoretically would die and the reservoir would drain and you could potentially cure an infection. It strikes me that your work could help inform this to prod cells to transcribe their HIV. What do you think? Uh, at one level, the answer is quite probably yes. So the failure of the latent virus to be expressed uh, is for sure uh, due at some level to the packaging of the viral DNA in nucleosomes. And without a doubt, the uh, kind of uh, repression by nucleosomes to which I alluded comes into play, only in this case, uh, possibly not uh, in regard to the transcription of the viral DNA, but rather to its uh, replication for the purpose of multiplying the virus particles. Uh, no one has even a hint of an idea uh, about the packaged form of the viral DNA in the human genome. Uh, but, uh, as I say, there's a very high likelihood that that is central to the process both of latency and then to uh, activation of the virus. I've covered the field for, for a few decades, and when I talk to people about your work, there's kind of a disconnect. I mean, it seems like a lot of HIV people who are at the forefront of trying to address this really don't spend all that much time in your sandbox. That's right. No, the, uh, the, the virology, especially at the level to which you refer, um, doesn't uh, reach, for the most part, to the molecular level. Uh, one day it must if the problem is to be solved. Uh, and so uh, the, the disconnect to which you refer is really uh, key to the eventual solution of the problem. It has to be bridged. It just hasn't been done. Do you see your work being applied in the clinic at all, or is it just uh, too far away in, in every field? There are a number of respects in which what we do has... Uh, clinical, sometimes very direct or immediate clinical application. So in regard to the nucleosome, uh, one of the reasons for such intense interest uh, at the moment, uh, the very first molecules that were identified that interfere with nucleosome transactions when tested in the clinic already proved to be potent anti-tumor drugs. And so there's a general sense, and I think well-founded, that uh, the opportunities uh, for uh, ad addressing uh, 
various problems that arise in the clinic through uh, molecules that interfere with nucleosome transactions are myriad, that there are an enormous number of possibilities that will be found. And um, that partly lies behind uh, the intense interest at the moment. In regard to transcription, uh, there have been important drugs around for years that interfere with the process at many levels uh, or modulate the process. Uh, so everything ranging from antibiotics to steroids actually impinges upon transcription. Now that we know details of the transcription machinery, and as we learn more, uh, we can develop better antibiotics, we can develop antiviral drugs which have not existed to this point, we can uh, modulate the action of steroids or mimic it in ways uh, which have not uh, or barely begun to be attempted. Uh, bear in mind that uh, all or most if not all uh, hormones including steroid hormones exert their effects through mediator. So uh, to the extent that we better understand uh, the structure and function of mediator, we will be able uh, to devise better or modulate existing uh, steroid hormone and related uh, drug molecules. So I, I know that no one stands alone in the world of science. Y you've had legions of grad students and postdocs and collaborators. I think it might be fun for you to name some of the people who've been most instrumental working with you to, to make the um, discoveries you've made, as well as other labs that have been competing with you and help move the field forward. Well, let me uh, begin in this way. I mean, my longest and closest uh, collaborator has been my wife, Yali Lorch, with whom uh, the work that you alluded to right at the beginning was done, the discovery that the nucleosome serves as a general gene repressor. The studies on uh, RNA polymerase structure and transcription uh, are the result of the work, as you have said, done by literally dozens of exceptionally talented people who joined me in my lab at Stanford. Uh, and some of those who I might mention, uh, but there were many, uh, Neil Liu was a graduate student who got us started studying yeast transcription. Seth Darst and Alad Edwards uh, did the original work on the structure of the RNA polymerase, followed by key contributions from Jinhua Fu, David Bushnell, still with me, uh, Patrick Cromer, uh, and then most recently, uh, very many more able people who pursue the work, uh, including uh, Dong Wang, Xin Lu. Uh, then I might mention in regard to mediator, um, there, the discovery was made by a graduate student again, uh, Neil uh, uh, Ray Kelleher, uh, followed by a postdoctoral fellow, Peter Flanagan, and then Klaus uh, Gustafsson, uh, especially Stefan Bjorklund, uh, and Young Jun Kim, who made a key contribution at an early stage, Larry Myers, and so forth. Uh, now, in regard to other labs, uh, indeed, uh, uh, their contributions have been not less significant. And uh, I should say at the time when we even began studying yeast transcription, uh, already pioneering work on uh, transcription in other systems had been done 
uh, by Robert Rader and his group, uh, then at Washington University in St. Louis, now at Rockefeller University, uh, by Ronald and Joan Conaway, then at the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, now at the Stowers Medical Research Institute in Kansas City, and I could name many more. I, I like it though. It gives a good, uh, it gives a clear sense that, th- that this is a big symphony, playing playing the tune with many important players, including many indispensable, many in indispensable roles. Mm-hmm. So you you have DNA science in your DNA. You grew up with both of your parents as prominent scientists who studied DNA. Your father also won a Nobel Prize. Your brother Thomas discovered. DNA polymerase 2 and 3, and your brother Ken is an architect who specializes in laboratory interiors. Did you ever consider not being a scientist? Actually, when I uh, started, uh, as it were, the serious preparation for a career, it was as an undergraduate at Harvard College where my major subject was English literature. And uh, I thought at the time that I might well do something along those lines, and it was only somewhat later in my college career that I uh, began to be aware of uh, what was the strong pull of chemistry. And so, in a way, quite independent of uh, my own heritage, my family background, uh, I decided to embark on a, on a career in the physical sciences and went to graduate school study, to study chemical physics. Uh, then after that, uh, I went again to work with a prominent physical scientist, then at the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, England, though at this stage uh, looking for a research problem to which to apply or to serve as a vehicle for learning X-ray diffraction, uh, still a branch of physics, um, I hit upon histones uh, and chromatin as a suitable objective study and one thing led to another and you can see how uh, to the present time so you stumbled into it <laughs> yes and and i think that's the best or almost the only way for not only me but everyone and and i don't view my own situation as in any way exceptional do you still have a novel in you that you're going to write one day <laughs> uh you know i always thought that uh that at some stage in my career i would write only uh now it seems, from what we were speaking before, speaking of before, that uh, it's going to take many lifetimes just to finish what I began to do in science, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure how I'll ever reach the point or uh, still have uh, the faculties or whatever is required to do serious writing. But, you know, I might mention, I think uh, writing in general expression in various forms in particular is crucial in science as well as in every other of activity and certain and I've always believed that uh, what training I got and my interest in uh, writing was beneficial even to me as a scientist and and I take pains about the way in which I write or speak about science so I I, I, I imagine you get extremely tired of uh, being asked this question but I think people are at the same time curious about it you're in the um, anomalous situation of having had a father who won a Nobel Prize and you won a Nobel Prize and I'm curious w- how you respond to the question, which I'm sure I'm the la- I'm I'm not the first person to ask this, and uh, and and what you how you put it in perspective. So my view is uh, the a, a, a situation to which you refer is a kind of statistical anomaly. Uh, 
I mean, if you look at the how few uh, uh, members of the same family have won the prize, it, it's really that which is more notable than uh, the exceptions where it occurred. Uh, and and I and then I look at the families that I know of other Nobel laureates, and there was really never much possibility of such a thing arising. I, again, I think it's uh, just a, a chance event, and especially unlikely now and may almost never occur again for the reason that the number of scientists has multiplied so far. Uh, so most of the occurrences, the, 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 the few examples in which members of the same family won a prize actually come from the first half of the century, of the last century. Madden when there Curry. were, exactly, when there, and the Braggs, there were many fewer scientists then. So the chances of this rare event were at least much higher. Now it's, the chances are, are small to vanishing. Um, I don't, I, I would bet that it, it won't ever happen again. Just for that reason, that the number of scientists is probably 100, 1,000, maybe 10,000 times what it was at, way back when. Uh, the competition for the prize, which always existed, is now so fierce. There are so many uh, potential areas and deserving, potentially deserving recipients. It's not likely to happen again. Hmm. Well, I think that's a nice note to end on. And thank you so much for all your time. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed talking with you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 75 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. Thanks for listening.